Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 188th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. What do you do when your teen has been cyberbullied, teased, or excluded socially? To discuss this, I brought in an expert. Kim John Payne, MED, has been a counselor, educator, consultant, and researcher for over 30 years, and is the author of several acclaimed books, including Simplicity Parenting, The Soul of Discipline, and Being at Your Best When Your Kids Are at Their Worst. His newest book is Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens, Empowering Your Kids to Navigate Bullying, Teasing, and Social Exclusion. Today, we explore what does emotional resiliency look like in our teens and tweens and what parents can do to raise empowered teens. So welcome, Kim. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Oh, I know. This is such an important topic. So the first question I ask all my guests is, are you a parent? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? Yes, I, I certainly am a parent, you know, and I'm so glad you asked that because that's our main qualification, right? There's all these <laughs> there's all these acronyms and letters after, after our names as therapists. But but no, I, I have a 19-year-old a daughter who, oh, she just turned 20. Oh, gosh, I better remember that. <laughs> just turned 20. And she's studying early childhood, actually, and to be an early childhood special educator. So she found her direction quite early in life. Actually. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And then I have a 23-year-old as well. And so absolutely, I, um, that is my main qualification. And thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And a couple months ago, you released another book called Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens, Empowering Your Kids to Navigate Bullying, Texting, and social exclusion. So can you tell me a little bit why you wrote the book? I wrote the book together with my dear friend and colleague, uh, Luis Fernando Llosa. I call him Don Luis. 
Luis is a real writer. He's not a pretendy writer like me. I'm a, I'm a therapist. He's a writer. Anyway, we got together and produced this book. My interest in all the books that I've written, everything from the earlier books I wrote on how to help children play who find it difficult to play, right through to another one I wrote was called Simplicity Parenting, lots of books. The reason for me is is pretty, pretty much the same, actually, Colleen. It's how to give children a childhood, how to mm. give tweens and teens the time that they deserve, the the kind of childhood that is so informative and foundational for them. And then what are the forces, what, what's going on that erodes that? And what can we do about that erosion? So from the that that is like an arc that runs through all the books I write. And with this particular book, what drew me towards ex- kids who get excluded, marginalized, bullied, teased, and essentially I would wrap all that up in being dehumanized, having yes. their humanity taken from them, uh, or at least try it, and is that that is one of the, it's honestly, it's one of the worst things that can happen to you as, as a kid in middle or high school elementary school too of course it is so such a hard experience because your life to a large extent it's based around your friendships and when you're being excluded marginalized pushed aside from that it really is a defining moment in your biography as a little kid you know as as a tween or a teenager And it can be very, very scarring, very um, dehumanizing, as I mentioned, or, and here's the or, or very formative, empowering, and can make you strong. And this book is written as a direct manual. I mean, it's pretty pithy. It's pretty practical Mm -hmm. for parents so that parents don't have to wait for school administration, for teachers, for coaches to take action because they do their best. But a school, for example, it's a it's like a cross-Atlantic liner. It takes a long <laughs> time for it to change direction. And it's like man overboard. And it's like, oh, really? Oh, you know, it's, it's really, whereas if we can help our kids break the cycle and it is a cycle, and maybe we can we can come to that, but break the cycle of exclusion, and we can coach our kids to do that. It can not only be a very positive, informative, and informative experience for our teenagers, but it also brings us very close to them because that exclusion is important to them. We talk to them about homework and all kinds of other stuff, and yeah, 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 yeah. But when we help them subtly and appropriately through their the issues that are really affecting their life, we end up, after that episode in their life, we end up super close to them. They so appreciate it. And so that's that's a long answer to 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 a question. But your fault, Colleen. That was a good question. That is so important because, like I told you, that I'm a therapist, and just what you just said. If if moms, if that's all you heard, this is so important because I think we think grades, grades, studying, grades, grades, and we might miss something that is so formative in these young people's lives. 
in terms of their friendships and what's going on with those. So that is so important. So you talk about emotional resiliency. So what what is that? And how is that different from a trauma-based response? Yeah, and, and just a quick word, Colleen, the grades that you were mentioning mm-hmm. with the emphasis on grades and, and transcripts and so on, actually, when a child is being actively excluded, I say a child, I mean a teen, a tween, I, I still think teenagers are children. <laughs> very dear. There's three aspects of children. There's early childhood, middle childhood, which we call tweens, and then later childhood, which we call teens. And I know we can't call them that, but I'm going to use that term interchangeably, if I may. But when they are being teased, when they're being marginalized, when there's social controversy in their life, the frontal lobes, the the studies done, particularly by Daniel Goldman in Emotional Intelligence, the uh, frontal lobe activity, the learning brain, the academic brain, the abstracting brain, the brain that can can deal with a lot of the learning of of various multiples, you know, which is what school is about, is actually takes a dive by over 80%. Wow. So if we want our kids to be academically on the ball and absorbing the information for that SAT or for whatever it is, if we want them to be absorbing that, working out social issues is not actually separated from academic issues. The two are absolutely interchangeable. Mm, mm, That's so powerful. Yes. And it's not just the academic. When the amygdala is firing, and this now sort of bridges into your other question, when the amygdala the fight, flight, and I would add freeze or flock brain. I add flock to that because of um, clickishness or clickishness. When mm. kids are stressed, they tend to develop clicks. And if and mm. on that spectrum, they'll move even further into gangs. Mm. Gangs are uh, to to some extent, not, not entirely, but a stress response, a trauma response. Because mm. I worked in gang rescue for quite some time. So, and that's not all there is to it, but that's a part of it. The trauma response is a lot of what happens around teasing and bullying and marginalizing, being marginalized, builds up like a cumulative charge and can end up looking like a trauma response because bullying is an exclusion, particularly subtle non-inclusion. It was an eighth grader who made that term up, by the way. I work with mm. eighth graders a lot, eighth graders and high schoolers to be social citizens of their school and of their community so that when there is marginalization going on, they're trained and they're active to go into the playground, the corridors, the bathrooms, the, and be all those in-between spaces and make sure they're secure and safe and healthy. Anyway, the resilient response stands juxtaposed to the trauma response. So I'll give a couple of quick examples. A resilient response is being able to bracket negative events. So something a little bit uncomfortable happens. Okay, that was at that recess, but that was that. That was that group of kids. It was in that space, that time. I'm moving on. That's a resilient response. A trauma response is that that spreads. And so a child, a teenager will feel that is total. That is the sum total of the day. That bad experience that I had at recess is everything for that day, that week. So it isn't bracketed. Mm. Um, in mm. other words, the frontal lobes, again, the neocortex, the, the executive, the big executive brain isn't kicking in. It's not seeing the the big picture. You only see the part. That's the trauma response. You hyper-focus on the trouble. Yes. Um, and another, I'll just pick a couple of quick examples. Another example 
of a resilient response is a child is able to participate in newness, things that that come out of left field or humor, because humor is often surprising. A trauma response is defensive to humor, very defensive and, and, and often push back against anything new. And by the way, Colleen, to pick up our previous theme, a, a very stressed and bullied child, a, a marginalized child will push back they don't mean to, but they'll push back against new learning, new math processes, new mm. uh, new language arts processes, and that's a big part of 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 the of the binding of the overlay between the two. Mm. Is learning is all about newness, being open to new, like moving your learning path forward. A child who's marginalised at school, scared to go into the bathrooms, scared to go on school trips doesn't feel secure and safe that's a child who'll push back against newness and novelty but that very much includes academics mm. uh, so in the book i give a i give a list i juxtapose these things go backwards and forwards between uh, what is a resilient response what is a trauma response and basically the book has at its core as the title suggests how can we build resiliency out of a really horrible situation? Yeah. Because the rubber hits the road when a child is really uncomfortable, excluded, doesn't is not finding their place in the group, or is excluding others, because that's just as a child excluding others is suffering just as much, only it looks different. Right. But and you and you might have noticed in the book what a, one of the things that I do is I, I use the term bullying a little bit. The editors wanted me to use that because people know about that, but it's very emotive. Maybe that's why they wanted me to use the term. It's, but actually, what what I more and more refer to so-called bullying as hyper-controlling behavior. Now I know that's not as easy to say as bullying. <laughs> the reason I use that term, hyper-controlling behavior is because, first of all, it doesn't pathologize. It doesn't pigeonhole and limit and label, but it names. I think there's a difference between labeling and limiting and naming and knowing. It does name the situation, but it leads to a question. If a child is, is so-called bullying another and we shift the language to hyper-controlling, then it leads to a question, why? Why are they trying to control this mm, situation? That's good. It doesn't mm -hmm. lead to a label. It leads to a question. Mm -hmm. It's not accusative. It's inquisitive. And then that leads to movement. Bullying, it doesn't lead to movement very often. It leads to, to labeling and pathologizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's so good. And when you were talking, it made me think that I think for moms, like we spend most of our time trying to prevent our kids from being bullied and we want to pick the right schools and the right clubs, have the right play dates and have the right kids come over. But they're going to have experiences of being excluded or all those things that you were just talking about. So I really like your book because it's like you're not a bad mom if that happens to your kids. So it's like, what can parents do? What can moms do when it does happen? Because it will happen. And like you said, I love the term in between spaces because that's the kind of stuff that I hear about in my office. Like what happens in the bathrooms, what happens in the halls. In chapter one, you is titled What to Do and What Not to Do. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that parents should do or not do? 
<laughs> yeah. When a teenager gets in the car at the end of the day or comes home out of the bus, and the first thing to understand is that most kids underreport being excluded. Right. So if they say something, it's it's the old metaphor of tip of the iceberg. Usually there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And we kind of know that at a gut level stuff that something's up. Usually one of the things to avoid as a parent is as obviously as freaking out, because if we freak out, if we overreact uh, in various ways, if we get all enmeshed and caught up in their biography and their biography becomes our biography and it triggers us, I understand all that. I'm a dad, you know, I get it, but we can't stay in that space. It's understandable that it happens, but it's really important to move beyond it. So the first thing is don't beat yourself up if, if you react in an incredibly like mama bear. If you, mm -hmm. if you mama bear it, yay, good for you. But it's very important important to then move from Mama Bear to Wiley Fox to Wise Owl. <laughs> if I could, if I could, you know, maybe I should write a story about that. It's very important to move move beyond that. The other thing is to is is to be very careful um, not to normalize. Now, mums don't usually do this; dads do. Mm. It's just a part of growing up. Boys will be boys and it's normalized. That leaves a child feeling really bereft because right. if this is normal, what do I do with my life? Big life questions start coming up. If this is normal, oh boy, you know. So, so that's the other extreme is to, is to normalize it. In between the two actually is, is just being able to listen, be a big heart with ears. <laughs> just, just listen check out what's going on ask you might share a little bit of your own biography you might say yeah look when I was in high school I started you know when I started a hot we moved do you remember I told you that and you might just share a little bit of your own biography not so much that you depress your child but <laughs> but but just a little bit you empathize but really ask about their situation and don't probe too deeply. Let them go at the pace they want to go with their story. And then also, one of the things I've noticed that's helpful to do is to say, you know what, sweetheart, I'm sorry, this is just my, this is, I'm a mum. I'm going to be checking in with you a little bit about this. And I promise not when you, when you just don't have anything to say or whatever, I won't push it. But over the coming days and weeks, I am going to check in and just say, how are you doing with that thing with that group of kids? I just wouldn't be doing my job unless I did. And, and to pre-pave the conversation and also to say to them, and you know what, I'll ask you if it's okay. You don't have to sit at supper wondering if you're walking into an ambush. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you if it's okay that I ask. And you can say no, and I will honor that. I can't tell you over the years how much that's relaxed teenagers mm -hmm. because otherwise they start avoiding us because they never know when we're going to jump out and hassle them again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's another thing to avoid. Another thing to avoid is, is blaming. And this, this is some parents, this seems counterintuitive to them, but it, to avoid blaming and shaming and dehumanizing the kids that are picking on your child mm. because secretly and this is the counterintuitive part. Secretly, your child may very well be hoping that someday those kids will be her friend. And if you demonize them, not only are you replicating the behavior that you're, that, that you're saying is bad, 
a weird role model to bully a bully into stopping bullying. That's just <laughs> strange behavior. <laughs> but the other thing is that they've got a secret little hope that, that it might work out. And if we've demonized those kids, then your son or your daughter, your, your, your teenager will uh, clam up. I think there's a little more with males, maybe, I don't know. But you want to be able to keep the conversation timed and even say it right out loud to your teenager, you know, when you're done talking about this, just tell me. And yeah. let them set the time. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you won't talk to them again about it. Yeah. But don't go on and on and on. <laughs> because then they'll avoid you again. <laughs> Let them just bring this out episodically. Let them just, yeah. The things, so that's the things to avoid. And then another thing to avoid, which kind of tips us into perhaps another theme. One of the things that I write about in the book, and I always advise parents when a child is being going through a really rough social patch, stop the world. You have to really look at your calendar and say, what am I cutting out? I have to move in close to my son or my daughter. Mm. I have to be available. Mm. And it's not that you, you know, like, yeah, you can go cycling and yeah, you can throw hoops and you can do board games in the evening, sit, watch a movie together, put your arm around them and watch some, you know, rom-com or whatever, you know, whatever you want to watch. The action movies are a bit harder to watch, but anyway, do your best. Be with them, be with them more. And given the advice in this book, and I don't want to overstate it and sound like I'm selling something. I'm seriously not. I just want to help. But given the advice in this book, if you follow it, the teasing will usually end in a couple of weeks, three to four weeks max. So for three to four weeks, look at your calendar and just and just start deleting, start reorganizing, stop the world, clear your calendar, make time. If you don't do that, then what's not happening is, he, uh, is that you're not establishing what I call in the book uh, a family base camp. You have to really secure a kid's base camp, spend time with them. And a lot of it's got to do with time. And it's not so much quality time. I don't, not that, it's presence. Just yeah. be around more, do more yeah. stuff together, move in a little closer. With a 16 or 17 year old, you might be very transparent and say it, you know, just say, hey, we've got to, we've just got to get some more ground under our feet at home. I'm sorry, I've been so busy lately. I know I have. I'm just going to be around more. And it doesn't mean we have to have long, serious conversations. It's just, we need to get this base camp thing established, because you're going out into an expedition, like an expedition into hostile territory every day. And you just need to, we, so it's a, and I give advice sp practically how to establish that base camp. I talk about four aspects of base camp to be careful of, but it is that sort of, yeah, establishing security and safety as much as you can at home. And that does involve us. If we live life at the same pace, then we're inhibiting our ability to make these repairs in the mm -hmm. kid's life. That's such good wisdom. So good. Okay, so in chapter two, it's titled Belonging is a Process, Not a Right. And then you talk about initiation. So can you explain what you mean by that? 
Yeah, you know, I've been really interested. I, as you probably tell, I'm not from the United States. Pretty tell within like two words. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm from Australia, and uh, it's my birth country. I've lived in the U.S. now for 25 years, but I've travelled an awful lot, and I've been really interested in rites of passage and coming of age. Always been very, very interested in it, and I've personally seen a handful of coming of age ceremonies and rites of passage. One of the things that has occurred to me quite strongly, this sort of built up as a pretty clear picture, is that whilst rites of passage and coming of age have a more physical expression in in certain cultures, which is good and right and proper, and they still they still carry that. I've been in rites of passage in Papua New Guinea and in Lombok and Bali, in Southern Africa, in West Africa. I've personally seen these rites of passage. But when our kids are suffering and they are isolated, that is, it's like a social coming of age. It's like a social self-definition because rites of passage always leave traditional rites of passage always have a period of isolation they all do where kids are isolated then they have a they all have endurance where there's a vision quest there's hard things physical things done they all have a a, a part of change where there's a change happens and then a new belonging to the tribe a new sense of belonging now, if you think about how to help our kids through social difficulties, it's the same thing as running, only there's not the traditional outward recognition of it. Kids, when they're teased and bullied and isolated or teasing others or whatever, but if your child comes home and says, I'm teased, that's very isolating. So right there is a match. Then they, they've got hard times ahead, endurance. They have to push through and we can help them push through. And then there's a change that occurs and we can help them change that situation so it doesn't remain unhealthy. And then there's a new sense of belonging, which is wonderful. But that belonging, and here's a key point that I often make, Colleen, is that we want our kids to belong, to be accepted and belong. And, and of course we do. You're a parent, I'm a parent. We all want that. But um, belonging is a process and not a, not a fixed right. It's not a thing that the kids can't always belong. If a child is going through social difficulties, that is a part of self-definition. If you think about rites of passage, for thousands of years, they've been a part of a, of a young person around 12, 13, 14, defining who they are and their relationship now to the world in a new way. That's what a, that's what a rite of passage is. When a child is being excluded and we help them through and we elder them, just like the elders help kids through traditional rites of passage, what this book is about, that was actually one of the titles that the publishers thought wasn't so great, but it was all about eldering, eldering mm -hmm. our teenagers. That was one of the titles I wanted because we are the new elders and we can get around them and elder them through this process. And will they change as a result of it for the good? Yes, they can be stronger. They can stand inside their power more. Will they belong? Will they get new friends? Yes, categorically. Yes, they will. They will form new friendships until it begins again, until 
the feeling of, of isolation, exclusion, endurance, change begins again. So if your child comes home, just as you, as you mentioned, if a child comes home and, and it's really going all wrong at school with friends, and it might not be as serious as bullying, it could just be that subtle non-inclusion um, or falling out with a friend or whatever it is. Right there is your process begins by moving in to elder them through this process so they will come out changed, stronger, and with a feeling of belonging. Bullying and teasing and isolation only is negative and powerfully negative if it stays stuck in the isolation. Yeah. And that's what this book is about, is moving them through the isolation to helping them endure, to helping them get through it, to being to that change coming and then that new feeling of, okay, I'm good now, I belong, this is going well, until it happens again. I just, I love that because you just normalize all of it. Well, I know with like moms, you worry like, what's wrong with my kid? And sometimes moms have shame that their kids are being excluded, like there's something wrong with them. So what I love about this is you've just normalized the whole thing. And it's just true. Yeah. And the eldering doesn't have to be as a mom or a dad or as a mom and a dad or a mom and a mom, whatever, you know, you're not alone. It's really important. In traditional rites of passage, there was the tribal elders. Mm. Plural. Yeah. So Colleen, for many moms in your community that you've created, you're a part of their elder circle, mm. right? It, it's, yes. You, you and the other part of, the, of this community that you've gathered together and help, you do not have to go through this on your own. Yes. But know that you are a part of the eldering. In fact, I would say perhaps you're the you're the central elder, but mm. reach out to your other elders. You see, Colleen, women still know how to do this. I think we are seeing the last generation or two of women who know how to do this. Men, mm. we lost track of it about two, three generations ago. We don't hang out together so much. And when we do, largely we talk about sports and power tools, <laughs> you know, if we're not careful. Not yes. often and not by any means. I live in this beautiful big old farmhouse. And when my wife Catherine's friends gather here, I can't believe how quickly they go into depthful conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes. So reach out to your elders, sit down and figure out who are, who can help me through this with my son or my daughter. Yes. And, and so, so that, yes, it is normalized. This is a normal part. And I would even go one step further and say, yes, it is normal. But I, when our kids are excluded and struggling socially, I actually think it's special. It's a special opportunity mm, to yeah. help them grow. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So I could talk to you for hours and hours. So why don't you tell me a little bit of if the moms are listening or probably, well, how do I elder? What does that mean? (laughs) I know, right? Because we look at these (laughs) tribal elders. I remember actually once talking to some tribal elders in, in, in Southern Africa 
and saying, you know, thinking, oh, you're so wise. And I spent days in a dusty old Land Rover breaking down, getting out to receive tribal wisdom, right? Yes. So I got there and there, and, and I, I told them we're struggling with our kids back in the, you know, back where I come from. And how are you doing with your kids? And they said, they said to me, oh, the kids today, they won't come to initiation <laughs> practice. We take them to the caves for isolation and we find them in each other's cave. And, you know, and it's like, and I thought, oh, no, I spent the better part of a week getting to this place. And honestly, you and I could be having that conversation in any parking lot of any high school in the country. <laughs> Right. That's awesome. So we have to sort of quit romanticizing what it is to be an elder. Elder is to come alongside our kids. The, the metaphor I often think of, and I write about in one of my books called The Soul of Discipline, that, you know, we are the guides to our kids. We're, when they're little, we're the governor. When they're in their teenagers, we're kind of the gardener, just listening, shaping. But when they're teenagers, we're the guide. A key thing about parenting teenagers, I find, is to talk to them about their emerging direction, about their direction in life, mm -hmm. because they can be spectacularly disinterested in our opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they can. But they're very, very interested in their direction. And mm. I, I talk to teenagers about distractions to direction, like the New York City metaphor: don't be taken across town bus if you want to go downtown. Mm -hmm. That's a distraction. That party with alcohol, come on, man, that's a distraction to what you you got your SATs. Come, like really, really. Isn't that a distraction to what, hey, come on, this really, really late night before your big game tomorrow that you're planning, isn't that a distraction to your direction? That, That's good. That good. Yeah, really, right? But I think of the metaphor of a canoeing metaphor with teenagers, eldering them is a little bit like, and I'm mixing my metaphors here a bit, but it's a bit like bringing your canoe alongside them. <clears throat> it's not to get ahead of them. And it's not to let them get so far ahead that they disappear down the rapids. But if they're in trouble, I, I watched, I was on a school trip once, I was a school counselor in a high school for years and years. And I watched a really skilled instructor once when we were on a school trip. A girl had gotten into approaching rapids, her canoe was spinning, she was getting in trouble. This uh, instructor very courageously just powered out, moved in beside, it was actually a kayak, moved in beside her said, I've got you. It's okay. It's okay. We were right. And that girl was spinning and she was starting to shout and panic. And, and she just gradually just moved her over and said, look, we're heading over there. Here's what you do. Paddle this way. Feather. Yeah, that's it. Do, do, do that. And she talked her into calmer waters. And when they were in calmer waters, the girl was crying a little bit because she'd almost gone over a smallish, but a very dangerous waterfall. And she talked to her. I was full of admiration for this instructor, but I thought, my goodness, that's exactly what it is to be an elder to our kids. Mm. It's coming alongside them, mm. our teenagers. And when they're in turbulent waters, mm -hmm. when things are going wrong socially and it's really turbulent, yeah. move them beside them. Don't get ahead of them. Don't go to the school and start pounding on the desk. But don't normalize it and stay so far back that you lose sight of what their troubles are. Move in beside them and just take them into calmer waters. And then this instructor actually got this girl out of her kayak. They went up onto the bank. They climbed up onto a little bit of a high place. And, they, and she said, have a look down. Do you see here's the, that's because the girl didn't want to go, go anymore. She wanted to go home. 
she she it would have been a very serious injury if she had gone over this waterfall. And they plotted and they planned and they walked along the bank a little bit and they checked it out and she came back and said, are you good to go? And she said, yeah. And I thought, there mm. you are again. She mm. was an elder. She took her to the higher ground, mm. but she didn't tell her what to do. She asked her, where would you go now? Okay, how would you do that? Do you think mm. you've got the skills to do, go that route or that route? Mm. I was watching this with just such deep admiration, mm. but I was also thinking about every parent in the world of a teenager. That is such a perfect metaphor. Yeah. So you are obviously a great storyteller. I know towards the end of your book, you have a bunch of stories that can be really helpful for teens. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is where Luis was so helpful, right? He's a real writer. He's won all these awards and such because what we did, this part of the book, we very much sort of partnered up. First part of the first four chapters I kind of wrote and then Luis and I kicked in in these um, stories. And they're 10 stories. And they're stories of 10 different kinds of marginalization and exclusion. They range from cyberbullying. Well, actually, three or four of them have aspects of cyberbullying in them. Call that bullying without borders because it just has no borders to it. Yeah. Other stories are around like quite aggressive physical bullying, everything from that to the thing that you would not call bullying at all. It's just a, a young woman, a teenager, teenage girl who couldn't find her way into a friendship group. Mm. And then everything in between, interference mm. with property, marginalization, race-based issues, homophobic issues. And we take malicious rumors that was particularly, a lot of girls have read that story and related to it. In my work as a school counselor for 25 years, I wouldn't try and tell kids, teach kids anything. I, would, I wouldn't tell them what to do. I would tell them a story. Because you open the heart of a teenager when you tell them a story, tell them what to do, and they'll often push back. Right. So I would tell them a story. And these so these 10 stories are meant to be read aloud stories, even with a 15-year-old. Now, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds will say, Mom, I know this. And, and my response always when they said to me, I know this, would always be good I am so glad you know what's in this story because their story is written, written with narrative, you know, with dialogue and so on. I'd say, now we take this from knowing to doing because if you were doing it, it wouldn't be happening. Mm. So now we take it. And there's stories about don't be put on the witness stand. In other words, if kids are spreading malicious rumors about you, as one example, then don't let that, whoever is spreading malicious rumors, don't defend yourself. Say things like, you can say that. I can't stop you. Say things like, okay, you can believe that if you want to. In other words, don't get caught up. Don't be cross-examined. Don't be allowed these kids to be the police and having them be questioned you. No one gave them the right to be your personal police force. They have no right to question you. Stand inside your power. You know, and there's all kinds of ways in these stories that kids discovered how to stand inside their power. And then you can discuss the story with your teenager and say, what would you do differently? How would you navigate that? Some of the stories are written for quieter kids, kids who are just not going to come out and say this sort of stuff, but they're taught to do inside talk and narrative and, and have an inside conversation and in, because that's what they're good at. Other kids can address it in more extroverted ways. 
And it takes into account the characters of the, their temperament of the various kids. It's a 10-story toolbox. And pretty much, if you're, if you're picking up this book when your child's 11 or 12, 9, 10, 11, 12, pretty much by the time they're 16, 17, you will have gone through all those stories. You know, it's, it's like they will have got, gone through many of those iterations of social difficulties. And honestly, I think that is what makes this book a little bit special, if I may say that, of my own Yes, book, you may. Because it's, it doesn't just stay in the realm of advice to parents. Mm -hmm. You can sit right on down and read through a story with them and then say, now, what would you do differently? How would you, what does that say to you? What could you replicate? How could you do that? How is it different for you with this group of kids? Is it the same? Good. Well, what about we do that? And directly out of that, that child can go into school that next day with a whole new way of standing in their power. And they'll mm. come home and say, mom, I did it. And you're so thrilled that they say, I, because they did, even though you coached them, you elded them, they have the feeling of, I did it. Mm. Mm. That's so, so good. So mm -hmm. good. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the mothers who are listening? Yeah, I, honestly, I think it's trust our instincts. Sometimes people ask me where, you know, like, how can we get more, like you say, advice on this and the advice is within us. And I don't mean that to sound hokey, but really to our instinct to protect our children in this, in these kinds of situations is to be trusted. What this book does is move us from that instinct to protect to actually moving that to a reality of empowering. So you move from protecting to empowering. And that for me is crucial that our kids come out of these situations stronger. Mm. Mm. That is really, really powerful. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times in a mom's head is how can I protect my kid? And we don't even give our brains airtime to think about how do I empower my kid? I agree with you. I think this is a very special book. And I think moms, a lot of times you feel just powerless when you see your daughter or your son upset. You're giving us such a hopeful message because I'm a huge believer in resiliency myself. Like we want our kids really bubble wrapped and go through adulthood and just never have to suffer, but they are going to suffer. So how can we be there for them? How can we empower them? is the most important question, like you said. Where can they get your book, Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens? Oh, just, you know, at all the normal places. It's one of those, big, you know, it's distributed, I think, by the Random House, Penguin Random House, published by Shambhala. So anywhere, anywhere good books are sold, as, as the saying goes. <laughs> um, also at our website, um, my main website is simplicityparenting.com. Okay. And yeah, right there, you can get a hold of the book. I'll be doing a, a series of, I just finished actually a couple of weeks ago doing a free webinar on this. We'll be keep an eye on the Simplicity Parenting website or on the newsletter because over the next six months, we're going to be offering a whole series of short and free webinars. I also touch on this theme a lot in my podcast. I keep coming back to this theme because obviously it's so dear to my heart. Yeah. So that's that's the things to keep an eye on. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, and what a great message. So lovely to meet you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye for now, Colleen. All right, bye-bye. 
This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.